Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Akash Mehta. Akash is a writer and organizer from New York. He is a member of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA, and helped organize U Chicago for Bernie. Akash recently wrote a great article for Jacobin called, Even in a Pandemic, Andrew Cuomo is Not Your Friend. Governor Cuomo has received a lot of good press for his handling of the coronavirus crisis in New York, but his past and present decisions have made the state less prepared for this ongoing calamity. We discuss those decisions in great detail, as well as why Cuomo is popular and trusted right now, how his Get Things Done brand obscures real ideological differences between him and the left, why ideology does influence the response to the coronavirus, Milton Friedman's keen understanding of the politics of crises, the links between Biden and Cuomo, how Cuomo empowered Republicans in New York to kneecap progressives in his own party, his plan to cut Medicaid by billions due to his unwillingness to increase taxes on the wealthy, how he blames private hospitals for not having enough ICU beds, even though he played a substantial role in cutting 20,000 beds from the state, why we should provide free health care for all conditions, not just the coronavirus, Cuomo's prioritization of homeowners over renters, the choice we face between prioritizing the needs of the market over the needs of people, a call to join political membership groups like the DSA or the Sunrise Movement, what you can do to influence the New York state budget, a plan for a left news site devoted to New York City politics, and my thoughts on the intersection between effective altruism and the left. As we discussed near the end of the episode, the changes Cuomo is pushing are part of a state budget that is due on March 31st. Cuomo has responded to public pressure by releasing people incarcerated for technical parole violations and may cave to pressure to reject these cuts as well. You can contact his office using this form linked in the show notes and or by calling 1-518-474-8390. The number is also in the show notes. If you live in New York, you can find your state senator or assembly member uh, at a link that's in the show notes. Calls to their office opposing these cuts and supporting the proposals in the hashtag Make Billionaires Pay initiative could help influence billions of dollars in funding to people in great need. The site for Make Billionaires Pay also has guidance on how to effectively pressure your representative and it is linked in the show notes. I'll note that there's a bit of a low audio quality for the first three minutes of the interview, but we switch mics and it really improves after that. If you'd like to get in touch with Akash to discuss anything you heard on this episode, including his plans for a New York City left-wing news site, you can reach out to him at akvmeta, M-E-H-T-A, at gmail.com. The email address is also in the show notes. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at GarrisonLovely. Uh, or reach out to the show directly at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Uh, here is Akash Mehta. Akash, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So uh, I read your article this morning. This is the shortest turnaround I think I've had on conceiving of a podcast episode idea and then actually executing it. Um, it's an article about Andrew Cuomo, who's getting a lot of uh, positive attention at the moment. Why is he so beloved uh, within the American public right now? Yeah, I think there's, I think there are probably deep reasons, which maybe we'll get into. The, the, the shallow reason, the quick reason, is just that we're in a crisis. We are all so like desperately uncertain about what's going to happen in the in the coming, not just months, not just weeks, but days for some of us. Um, and he is projecting this image of stability and competency and someone who, you know, as opposed to the to the buffoon in the White House, actually knows what he's doing, will give you the facts, as he constantly says. 
and uh, and is someone that we can trust uh, in this moment. And so I think we're I think there's just a real impulse to uh, to grab onto anyone who seems like they can kind of be our savior. Yeah, and he's doing like these daily press briefings where he's like, as you say, go, going through the facts and showing powerpoints and adding some like levity and uh, personal affect to uh, to the briefings. And I have friends who are like not super politically engaged, but you know they're of the left broadly, and they'd be like, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of Cuomo, but like he's really got this under control. Um, so I guess right. let's just start with like what what should we give Cuomo credit for before we tear into him? Sure. Yeah. So I think the, the the what he has been most successful at is exactly what you're saying, which is providing the sense of stability and calm, um, and not a sense of complacency. He, I, I don't think many people are li- are watching his press conferences and saying, "Okay, it's fine to go out and have a drink uh, at a bar," but instead a sense that, "Okay, ultimately the people uh, the people who are in charge, at least in New York, know what they're doing, um, and we we are." Uh, we're under uh, we're under safe leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I think ultimately that's actually the most dangerous thing about his past conferences as well. But I think that's that's um, that is the biggest success, and that's important in a in a in a crisis um, to to keep people from panicking. Um, I think it's also true that New York has so, for instance, New York has has aggressively tested um, and. All the people I spoke with for my article said that he's doing a good job marshalling um, the various agencies of the of the New York government. Um, he's doing it effectively. I think he is getting some credit that maybe is not because he's particularly effective, but just it's because New York has a great public health system, and um, which uh, because we gained so much experience from HIV/AIDS um, and the Ebola task force that came to New York to. Uh, to um, to study the way that we um, the way that we manage public health crises in New York, and so I think he's kind of um, that's a big advantage for him. Yeah, and and New York State is just wealthy yeah. and kind of the center of global capitalism. Um, there's just a lot of resources here that other states don't have. Cuomo's uh, been getting credit. Um, he deserves some for being, I guess, a clear communicator and the appearance of stability and. Uh, competence is important. Um, the figurehead role of a governor or president does matter. And uh, I can understand why people would feel more confident having him at the helm than Trump, although that's about the lowest bar imaginable. Uh, but uh, yeah, even people who are saying things like uh, criticizing Cuomo publicly are getting a lot of responses to their tweets saying like, you know, I don't like Cuomo's politics or I don't like these things that he's done. But like lay off of him, he's doing the best he can right now. Right. What, what do you think of that? Right. Well, actually, so uh, there was a there was a profile of Cuomo um, a few years ago in the Atlantic, where he where he was talking about why he and his uh, his branch of the party was better than the insurgent Bernie Sanders left of the party, and he used the metaphor of a plane. And he said, uh, here, actually, I have the exact quote. Um, He said, I know how to do what everybody's talking about doing. They're all talking about how to fly an airplane. None of them have flown. And that's a big difference when you get in the seat and you buckle the seatbelt. And we just had a guy who spoke about flying a plane and never flew. It's not as easy as it looks. 
I know how to do affordable housing. I know how to bring jobs to the middle class. I know how to build infrastructure. And I think this is a really revealing metaphor. The New Yorker, by the way, also used it in a cartoon uh, a few years ago where, uh, where the, it was uh, a cartoon of passengers in an airplane and one guy stood up and said, these pilots are so out of touch with us. Uh, who thinks I should take charge? And everyone raised their hands. <laughs> And you know the the liberal hoi polloi elite uh, or the liberal elite scoffed at the populist hoi polloi, um, thinking that they could fly the planes uh, without the expertise required and the you know technocratic competence required uh, to mm -hmm. to fly a plane or to lead a state. And I think the 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 the, uh, the content of this kind of politics or the idea behind this kind of politics is that basically all Democrats are the same. Where they want to go is the same place. They, they're all headed in the same direction. The difference is uh, is who's more effective in getting it done. And so you have Hillary Clinton saying, I'm, I'm a progressive who gets things done. Um, or you have Joe Biden who, who uh, talks about his experience and how that's going to allow him to do all the things that Bernie Sanders um, only promises to do but can't actually deliver on. Um, and I think what Cuomo, as we'll get into, shows is that, in fact, this is uh, what this misses is, in fact, they are aiming at very different goals. In fact, they do have different politics. They are trying to get to different places. And so competency is ultimately not the um, even in a public health crisis, competency or technocratic competency is ultimately not the right, the, the, uh, the best metric to think about um, comparing these politi politicians against each other. It's in fact what their ideologies are and what they're actually trying to do. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Um, somebody I follow on Facebook posted something, usually smart posts, but this one was a little uh, out there saying like, oh, what I like about the coronavirus response is that there's no ideology to it. Um, there's just like competence and incompetence. Right. And it's like, that's so insane, right? Because the Republican Party in America has just systematically dismantled the government, right? <laughs> Every opportunity they had. And, you know, Trump cut the pandemic response team in 2018. Or John Bolton directed the cut, but it was under the Trump administration. Um, the entire Republican Party is just like against the idea of the government helping people, more or less. And that might sound extreme, but I, I think it's actually a fair assessment. Right. Um, and to say that there's no ideology involved there uh, is crazy. Like, maybe a better way of thinking about it is that uh, some people have been willing to let go of ideological commitments that they previously held to respond to this crisis in the correct way. Um, and this is really like the ultimate collection act collective action problem, which, you know, the left has a response to the libertarians don't, the right doesn't. Um, and the, the right wingers who are doing the best on, at this, uh, like Mitt Romney, let's say um, are doing so by, actually saying, hey, the government should just give people benefits with no strings attached. That's like right. against decades of Republican orthodoxy. And so insofar as the responses to this aren't ideological, it's because people are just like forgoing these things that they previously believed. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it's also true that it's in crises that political reality changes in a way that it's so much harder to to change political reality uh, in 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 times, of, in, yeah, in times of normality, um, 
And the way I always think about this is Milton Friedman's um, preface to his book, Capitalism and Freedom, where, so the book was published in 1962, got it, like, no one reviewed it, it got no attention. And then came the crises of the 70s, the economic crises, stagflation, the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system. And all of a sudden, there was all this interest in, uh, in a kind of alternative to the Keynesian dominant framework. And then the book and his ideas um, started getting a huge amount of attention. And he wrote in this preface in 1982, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis mm. occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, as in the function of, of intellectuals, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. Um, and so even in this time of, of uh, I mean, even in these just really, really sad times, I think we should also think of it uh, as a time of opportunity. Um, yeah, for instance, as we're seeing with, uh, yeah, with Mitt Romney and the Treasury Secretary uh, and now the entire Republican Party backing unconditional uh, or not quite unconditional, but, but uh, giving money to the people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that quote is very apt and. Milton Freeman understood something very deeply true there. And uh, I guess, I guess we're going a little far afield, but I think that's fine. Um, yeah. I guess like what just saddens me the most about this is that it seems like we're going to waste another crisis. Um, and that might sound callous, but the 2008 financial crisis was this golden opportunity to remake our economy and society to be more just and humane. Um, and the Obama administration had, uh, kind of this ideological commitment to just shoring things back up as they were and not f like fixing enough of the underlying problems to prevent the specific thing from happening again. But, you know, there's examples of the Obama administration having tens of billions of dollars left on the table that they could have used to help home homeowners and mortgage holders. Um, and they just chose not to right. uh, because the real goal was to help the banks. And I think that had like really lasting repercussions on our politics and uh there's a lot of people that were burned by those decisions and you know might have otherwise been part of the democratic party and it's just incredible now that we've got this fdr like figure in bernie sanders who is in all likelihood not going to be the nominee um in a time where he really does have the only alternative i think to uh just fecklessness from the establishment democrats and callousness and barbarity from Republicans. Um, and, you know, Bernie's whole platform always seemed like a pipe dream. But when you've got an economy in free fall and a public health crisis we haven't seen in 100 years, it actually becomes much more plausible to see single payer pass um, or a Green New Deal, because we're going to need something to restart our, our economy when all this is over. And uh, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not totally counting it out yet. Uh, my friend uh, Nathan Robinson had a good article on the primary not being over yet, um, which I encourage everyone to read. I'll, I'll put a link to it. But it really does make me sad about like what could have been potentially. Right, right. I think this is actually a good bridge back to Cuomo because, yeah, so we have Bernie, which is the first uh, time in, in, in decades where a serious alternative to um, to the neoliberal consensus has been has been offered to the American people, and it looks like we're instead going with Biden, who has you know said to a room of bankers, nothing is going to fundamentally change. Now, uh, 
someone who calls himself a close ally to Biden is uh, is Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo says that Biden is the candidate who can actually do get something done because people can't eat rhetoric. Cuomo says, mm-hmm. and and uh, and so what this shows is that we're. Uh, as we're, as we're going to see, Cuomo is kind of cartoonishly evil and in a way is a kind of easy target, right? Um, as, as we'll see. But in fact, the, this entire wing of the Democratic Party um, is in lockstep with Cuomo. For instance, Cuomo, one of the most horrible parts of Cuomo's record is that, in fact, he is responsible for the Republican control of the New York State Senate uh, that that despite the fact that New York is one of the most progressive states in the country that held up New York's progressive legislation for years and years. And the way that he managed to keep control, uh, keep Republican control of the state Senate was supporting um, this caucus called the Independent Democratic Caucus, which was a breakaway group of of Democrats um, that caucused with the Republicans. Um, And one of the chief strategists for that group called the IDC, um, was this woman named Liz Smith. Um, yep. Now, I wonder I if well. Liz Smith... Yes, Liz Smith was was the spokeswoman of uh, Pete Buttigieg. And so it's just one of these remarkable ways in which you see how this entire uh, wing of the party, even the part of the party that, you know, calls itself the, uh, you know, Buttigieg wants to portray himself, um, of course, as the insurgent wing, and there'll be other Democrats like him, Um in fact, they're all of a piece, and the same people work for all of them. Uh, and we, we, everything that we're going to see um, about Cuomo's ideology is, in fact, true of all of them. And and so, why would Cuomo want to support a group that is of caucusing with another party? Right, he's a Democrat. Right. So what's right. what's his advantage there? Well, so he is a Democrat in uh, in name. Um, I think actually his ideology is probably closer to um, to the Republicans than the insurgent left that actually does have a a, a grip on um, in the New York legislature right now. It's extremely exciting. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but then another reason was because he it essentially allowed him to um, to portray himself as. Um, as fighting, and this is what these Democrats always portray themselves as, as fighting within a system um, where they're getting the most that they can. And in all their failures that the left criticizes them for, it's in fact because of the Republicans. And they, you know, the, the, the centrist Democrats understand the kind of institutional constraints and understand how to make compromises with the Republicans. And so it gives him cover from, um, from the flack of, for instance, having to, progre- having to veto uh, progressive legislation, legislation, which is what he would have had to do um, had the Democrats been been in power um, in in those years. Yeah, yeah, it's, it kind of ties into this idea. So it allows which... him. To... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that it allows him to pre- preserve this mantra of "I'm a progressive who gets things done." So I'm on your side. I'm a progressive too. I agree with the vast majority of the people that yes, taxes should be raised on the wealthy, or uh, we should fund public services, and we shouldn't cut education. Um, but I uh, I have to acknowledge these kind of institutional constraints. Yeah, yeah. Which really behind the scenes, he's helping sustain. That's right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think like this is a model that I use to explain the behavior of a lot of democratic leadership, 
where if they're trying to win power and use it to achieve their ideological ends, the Democratic Party is incredibly ineffective. Um, but if you see them as people who are trying to just fundraise and ensure their own power within the party, um, then their behavior makes a lot more sense. And it's like the Democrats are having a field day with Trump in office and getting a lot more support um, financially. And, you know, it's just like, it's easier to be the embattled minority opposition party, right? And you can like always fundraise off of the awfulness of your opponent. Um, it's hard to actually take power and then have to say no to popular progressive ideas that would anger your donor class. And I think this starts to just explain the behavior a lot better. That's right. Yeah. And so specifically right now at this moment in a pandemic, we are seeing Andrew Cuomo's ideology reveal itself in, in just, I mean, let, let me say this, let me preface it with this, which is that I'm so like, I'm worried that like, for instance, if you weren't already on the left and you're listening to, uh, to me and you talk right now, you're, um, you ca it's these like ranting Bernie bros, right. Who are like, I don't know, dredging up like obscure attacks on, on Cuomo and just refusing to face the reality, um, of the exigencies of the moment or something. And, and I'm, and I'm, I don't know how not to sound like that, like that, because it is just so outrageous what he's doing that I can't help but but kind of let that anger show. And so specifically, um, one of the things that he's doing that just really ma ma makes my jaw drop is he is at the same time as he is, you know, every day lambasting the federal government for not giving him enough money, lambasting Trump for, you know, for for this horrible thing that Trump said about New York doesn't actually need these ventilators. At the same time, he is refusing six point seven billion dollars in federal aid that he could receive uh, that, that New York has or, that. Uh, that the that Congress has already given New York under the Families First Cor uh, Coronavirus Response Act that he is refusing because it comes with a provision that would prevent him from from enacting Medicaid cuts that he's been planning on it on enacting. It's yeah, I, I think this is kind of what ties the why Cuomo is shitty like history to the present moment, right? Where it would be one thing if Cuomo were doing everything in his power to fight the coronavirus and, and have this adequate response. And you could say, you know, Cuomo helped get rid of hospital beds in New York and Cuomo worked with Republicans to prevent progressives from having power. And all that would be true. But you'd say, but yeah, like that wasn't good, but he's doing his best now. But in the midst of this crisis, he's actively trying to cut Medicaid. And it's like, what, a $400 million cut in, in the first year? Um, yeah, but so, it's really uh, like a $7 billion cut, right? Because we lose access to this federal funding. Yeah. So to go through the numbers, it's a $2.5 billion cut in the next few years in Medicaid spending, but that's $2.5 billion in state spending. Now, mm -hmm. um, state spending is matched about 50%. I mean, uh, essentially before this family's first bill, it was matched 50% by um, the sorry, federal government by the federal government, as in the federal government match whatever the state government um, gives. So in fact, that's a $5 billion cut over the next few years, including 400 million in the next year to hospitals that are struggling to uh, to <laughs> to manage, you know, the worst health crisis that we've seen in a century. 
right? Okay, so that's $5 billion in cuts. Plus, if he actually goes through with these cuts, um, it will cost New Yorkers another $6.7 billion in, uh, in federal funding of Medicaid that was under that Families First Act that, that, I, uh, that I just mentioned. So if I'm doing the math right, that's $11.7 billion uh, in, in Medicaid that he's cutting at this moment of, of unprecedented uh, public health emergency. And so why, why is he doing this? This seems like a unpopular thing to do. Well, it would be unpopular if anyone knew about it. And one of the mm-hmm. really sobering things about the last week for me has been, I should just, I, I should kind of give full disclosure as maybe people can tell, but you know, I am not a, uh, I'm unlike some of the previous guests you've had on the show, like, you know, I, I don't have many qualifications. I'm just out of college. Um, <laughs> essentially the way that I published this this piece was I saw on the New York City DSA, I'm a New York City DSA member. And so I follow mm-hmm. the Twitter. Um, and I saw on the Twitter feed um, reference to you know to, to refusing this money, and I thought, wait a minute, that's that sounds crazy. That you know what's going on here? And I looked into it, and it was true. And there was some you know reporting in city and state, which it's not like many people you know who are who are not already following New York politics very closely read about this, but no no reporting beyond that. Um, and I saw people like you, I saw people on my on my feeds, um, you know, Bernie supporters. I saw them praising Cuomo. And so I, you know, posted links to this and people didn't believe it. And so I pitched it to Jacobin. I, um, I asked them if, if I said this clearly needs more attention. Um, uh, do you want to run the story? I'll look more into this and, and write a piece about it. Um, as far as I can tell, the reason he is. So I should say that. A lot of the people I speak to think that he, if they if they had to guess, they would say that he is ultimately going to cave on the six point seven billion dollars, mm-hmm. um, and he's ultimately the, going to accept the money and he's going to pass the Medicaid cuts, but postpone the 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 taking effect date um, so that he can take the six point seven billion dollars. We'll see. Um, I think that's probably true, but I'm a li- I'm terrified that that. He's not going to do that because he keeps saying that he said even you know today he said uh, he keeps saying this thing about how New York has there's a technical glitch that means that we can't accept the money because we've already started this Medicaid um, uh, redesign team process and so it means that we can't accept the money um, and he knows that he's lying about this and um, and I and I'm terrified that he actually is going to is going to ram through these cuts but even if he doesn't. Even if he turns around and accepts the the federal money and then only cuts, you know, Medicaid by two point five billion dollars starting next year instead of di- this year, it still shows something. I mean, just so just reprehensible about this guy that he's willing to to use this in this pandemic as leverage um, to cut billions and billions of dollars in education funding, which is um, which is something that won't prevent him from. Um, from taking this Medicaid money, um, and and that is a, and that I think is is what he's most what he's what, what's most likely that he's not going to pass um, tax increases on the rich. And I talked to this guy, and instead he's going to cut the the uh, the education budget. Um, and by the way, I'm worried that I'm getting too into the weeds here. So if you if I'll, uh, I'll synthesize uh, when, when you're done. Sure. Yeah. Um, but. Okay. Let, let me let me uh, preface, let me 
give the, the full context, which is unlike the federal government, state governments have to pass balanced budgets. You can't deficit spend. And so it means that you need to pay for, for everything that you spent. Um, and so he says, okay, we're going to have this big uh, deficit um, because of coronavirus. And so he says this publicly. So we're going to have to make hard decisions. He says, I can't protect anyone from reality. And so we're going to have to cut education spending. Now, in fact, this is untrue because what he could do is raise taxes on the wealthy. New York is the most unequal state in the country. <laughs> and part of the reason for that is because Cuomo has, has refused to raise taxes on the wealthy. In fact, a few years ago, he literally passed a tax exemption on yachts. Like, I can't oh. make this stuff up, right? Like, oh. uh, and, uh, and so he said, and, and there is this, um, and so he refuses to raise the taxes on the wealthy. And he says, in this time where people don't have jobs, uh, you know, it's unfair to ex to expect them to to pay more in taxes. But we're not asking the people who don't have who have been unemployed by this crisis to pay more in taxes. We're asking the yacht owners to pay more uh, in taxes. And so there's this measure, there's this agenda of 14 different measures um, under the the rubric of of a campaign called Make Billionaires Pay. And there's a hashtag even Make hashtag Make Billionaires Pay that has received substantial legislative support. Um, and it would raise $30 billion in revenue. Um, even just passing a couple of these, of these 14 measures would raise enough to cover the deficit easily and to, um, and to prevent the need for any cuts in Medicaid or education. Um, and so what we have a few days to, we were talking earlier in this podcast about how in crises, political reality can change. I do believe that if we raise enough awareness about this, um, we can get him to to at least accept one or two of these measures that will prevent these education cuts and Medicaid cuts. Um, and so the urgency in my voice is that really we have until April 1st to pressure him um, if he wants to retain this progressive um, you know, image that he's been cultivating over the last couple of years to pressure him to literally make billionaires pay. For, for the cost of our response to this pandemic, rather than making New York's school children and sick pay. Yeah. And and something you didn't mention, but is in the article, is that these tax measures have broad, like 90 plus percent support from voters. That's right. Um, including, 87%, including 87% support among Republicans. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, soaking the rich is popular, as it should be. Uh, I should... I should I should say that, so that poll that was done, it um, uh, essentially, it laid out before the voters the actual options on the table. And so it said, you have a number of options in order to fulfill this deficit. One of them is cutting education funding. One of them is cutting healthcare sp spending. Another is taxing people who, for taxing the incomes of people who have, who make more than $5 million a year. Or another is taxing, um, second homes, or another is uh, a 2% wealth tax on billionaires. And, and so when presented with the actual options that are before Cuomo and that are before the legislature right now in these budget negotiations, 80% of Republicans support taxing the rich. Wow. That's, yeah, uh, it's incredible. And it really speaks to Cuomo's willingness to do unpopular things in support of his donors. Uh, you mentioned that 
half of New York's billionaires uh, are contributors to Cuomo's reelection campaign. Yeah, that that statistic just really staggers me. Like, imagine, if, imagine, imagine if half of America's billionaires funded uh, Joe Biden. You know, like you know, hundreds of them do, but but imagine if half of them did. I mean, it's it's just crazy the level of corruption of New York politics. Another great stat is that Cuomo. Guess what percentage of Cuomo's donors give him less than two hundred? Uh, made a donation of less than two hundred. Uh, I'll say ten percent. Well, I know that you that you increased that guess to make to make this <laughs> statistic sound even more staggering, but it, it's zero point two percent. I actually no, I that was a real guess. It's that bad. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, one out of what is that? One out of five hundred. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's that's amazing. Stunning. Um. And yeah, and so yeah, this is complicated, but it's important. So I'll try and try my best to summarize, and you can correct me where I get it wrong. Um, but Andrew Cuomo has this Medicaid redesign team, something, um, and yeah, the That's Medicaid right. redesign team, and they proposed a two point five billion dollar cut to the state Medicaid budget, including four hundred million dollars to hospitals um, for this year. Um, and hospitals, there's an article I'll link to, uh, just like this would be devastating to them. They're facing about like a 1% profit margin. Um, and just like a lot of them would not be able to support this. And the cuts would disproportionately affect people who are indigent and uh, uninsured. Um, so Cuomo has been pushing for this cut. He is saying that uh, New York doesn't have the money to cover this gap um, and would push the cut on the local um counties, which would only be able to cover the difference by increasing sales taxes, so increasing what poor people have to pay for groceries. The alternative is that he could increase taxes on the wealthy. Um, there's 14 different measures put out by this uh, billionaire Make Billionaires Pay campaign that are very broadly popular. Um, he is instead lying to the press and public saying that he has no choice but to pursue the cuts, even though this would cost $6.7 billion in federal aid from um, that was put there by the by Congress, and specifically uh, Chuck Schumer, like was very proud to get this done. And the reason those cuts would, or the uh, funding would not come, is because there's a stipulation that people cannot be cutting Medicaid spending while getting government federal relief for Medicaid. Um, and so that's a situation we're in, where Cuomo is pushing like these wildly unpopular cuts uh, to defend his donors. And uh, they will come at the expense of the most vulnerable people in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, yeah, that's right. And and on the hospitalist point, so his defense at these press conferences, there has been such atrocious uh, journalistic oversight of any of, of any of this. But for the first time today, someone asked, you know, someone kind of softballed a question about. Um, about these cuts, about the $400 million uh, cuts to hospitals. And Cuomo says, well, their cuts, uh, hospitals are getting a ton of money from the federal government anyway. Uh, they're getting $100 billion across the country. Uh, and so, you know, they're getting the money anyway. The state government isn't getting the money. And so it's fine to, to make cuts on them. And, you, you know, and that actually sounds persuasive when you, when you don't think about it. And then you think, okay, why are they getting this money? It's because they are overloaded with, and they're going to be even more overloaded uh, with coronavirus patients. And they will literally have to perform triage, as in they won't have the, 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 the staff or the equipment to, to, like, to, to 
save the lives of everyone who's in the hospital. And so they'll have to, you know, kill old people because young people, you know, have more lives left. And so they are dramatically underfunded, in fact, in this in this moment. Um, and so it is ludicrous. I mean, it's it's unconscionable to to cut four hundred million dollars um, in d during a pandemic. And let me also say that in New York, in particular, one of the, or the reason why New York um, why New York hospitals right now are not um, are not equipped to uh, to manage the coronavirus crisis is because of cuts over the last couple of decades that Cuomo has been the most important player in uh, in procuring to healthcare services and to hospitals over the last couple of decades. Cuomo complains about how we only have fifty three thousand beds. Um, and we need to massively ramp that up. In fact, over the last few decades, New York has cut 20,000 uh, beds from the healthcare system, and Cuomo has been the most important player in, in bringing that about. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's this tendency to see this as like a natural disaster, and natural disasters are not, right? They are the result of decisions that we make individually as a society. Um, and it's just really, really frustrating just because it lets people get away with it. Um, and there's this quote, I, I have a quote from um, Cuomo actually, where he's complaining essentially about like, you only have 53,000 hospital beds. You only have 3000 ICU beds. Why? Because our healthcare system is basically a private system. They don't build capacity that they don't need. They don't build extra ICU beds just in case. So that's a quote from Cuomo explaining the issue with having uh, profitability determine healthcare access. Um, right. And uh, like the first time I heard that from him, I'm like, damn, like, oh, that's that's pretty woke. Right. Like this guy knows what's up. And it just completely eludes the fact that he was playing a role in the reason why there are fewer, not as many beds, um, because it's not entirely private. And there were hospitals that were sold to become new development projects for real estate, which uh, Cuomo was firmly in the pocket of. And so, yeah, it's just it's mind boggling that this guy is seen as like the hero that we need in this moment. That's right. And I, and I should say, maybe some listeners are thinking, OK, well, you know, like Joe Biden said in the debate, OK, Italy has a single payer healthcare system and, you know, they're suffering uh, from coronavirus, too. And of course, we would it would still be a crisis, um, e you know, even if Bernie Sanders had been in power for the last 20 years. Um, but what's what's indisputable is that um, the crisis is much worse because of uh because of an austerity approach to, to healthcare, And that's true in the country. And that's true in New York. Yeah. Yeah. There are already people who have died uh, because they were uninsured and could not get access to coronavirus treatment. And you'll have a situation where people might get treated and, and their lives might be saved, but they might come out of it with tens of thousands of dollars in debt, which is also already happening. Um, and in, in these packages that are covering healthcare costs for coronavirus treatments, it's not taking into account the fact that like there are people not getting access to healthcare because of this virus and they're not they don't have the coronavirus they have like some other need and they're losing their job as a result of it and like all these things are related and these kind of like patchwork efforts to address like oh we're only going to give money or like we're only going to give unemployment for people who lost their job because of coronavirus it's like why is it okay in this situation and not otherwise we're only going to give free healthcare at the point of service to people who are affected by coronavirus and it's like, well, we all face healthcare needs at some point in our life. And the idea that this is only appropriate now uh, just makes no sense. And all the arguments for covering everybody 
are only magnified by by the crisis that we're facing. I think that's such an important point. And I think that is, in a broader sense, that is the message that we need to figure out how to uh, deliver to the American people that, yes, this is a crisis, but a country in, in which the lack of Medicare for all costs 68,000 uh, lives a year, according to uh, that Yale study in the in, in the Lancet, is already it was already in a crisis before yeah. uh, before coronavirus. Or you know, as as uh, as as a nurse told me, I wrote about this in a piece. You know, a, a, a healthcare system in New York where even before coronavirus, her patients had to lie in their own stool and urine for you know for hours because there weren't enough nurses to to attend to all the patients. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, they had to wait for the nurses to come change their clothes. That's already a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think this is like forcing clarity on a lot of issues. Um, so I'm thinking now to, uh, there are a lot of people in Rikers Island and other prisons and jails throughout the state who are held there for technical parole violations. So these are people who might've failed a drug test or missed a meeting with their, uh, parole or probation officer. And this could be enough to land them back in prison or jail. And to his credit, Cuomo did release 1,100 people um, yesterday, actually. And that was something that was being called for by a lot of people on the left. And that's like a, a huge victory. Um, but it's like, well, if it's okay to release these people now, you know, why were they being held there in the first place, right? And you get this situation where it's like, you cannot justify incarcerating these people during a, a crisis where their health is at serious risk. But it's like, but it's okay to hold them because they failed a drug test. Uh, you can throw them back into like this hellhole that is Rikers Island where they're facing serious health risks in normal conditions as well. Uh, and it just kind of forces this like clarity of like, why the hell are we doing half the things that we're doing and why aren't we doing these other things that would be so good for people? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, but I would also say on the, okay. So I do think it's true that we, um, that in a, in, a, in a moment where prison, New York prisons are the epicenter of, uh, of the virus globally, as in their, the, the rates of, um, of positive cases per, uh, you know, uh, per capita mm -hmm. um, are greater in New York jails than almost anywhere else on the planet. And so it is uncon... And of course, they... And part of the reason for this is because they're incredibly crowded they're incredibly filthy. You know, there are stories of they don't have access to soap and hand, and hand, hand sanitizer uh, in Rikers. Um, and so it, it is true that this really is an emergency where we can have, there is a broader debate to be had about, uh, you know, incarceration. But in this moment, there is no debate to be had. We need to be taking as many people out of these death traps as we can. And yeah, it's great that he, that he, it's, that he uh, released 1,100 people. Um, but I, you know, I just looked it up and I'm not confident in the statistics. I'm just looking it up right now. But mm -hmm. um, the first result I find is that more than 51,000 people are behind bars in New York state prisons. Um, if that's true, then that's, then he just released, you know, about 2% of, of the state prison population. And that's not acceptable. Yeah. And so we have to, you know, and, I, and I'm, you know, I saw some people, you know, even people in New York politics who I, who I really respect and who even some people I interviewed for the article saying, thank you, Governor Cuomo, um, for releasing these, uh, these people on Twitter. And it's this, and it's this balance where, 
you know, we have to, I guess it's a, a, a strategic question. You know, maybe it is good that we, that we, you know, give credit where credit is due, but there's this real danger that we allow him to, to, that we allow him to use small measures to whitewash his record. You mm-hmm. know, so for instance, another big one is he suspended um, evictions for 90 days, right? Yeah. And so now whenever anyone asks him about rent, he says, he even said, I took care of the rent issue because yeah. he suspended um, eviction for 90 days. And needless to say, it is extremely good that he suspended uh, evictions for 90 days. And then you think about it for a second and you're like, okay, after those 90 days are up, what about all the people who you know haven't, uh, haven't been employed um, for for the last three months, maybe they get some money from from the federal government. Um, you know, not much, right? But um, uh, what do they do after the ninety days is up? And the the answer is that they will have three months of unpaid rent that then they will have to pay. And if they don't pay it, they'll be evicted then. And yeah. so it you know, and so of course it's good that they're not out on the street right now. But that's not enough. And it's not. I, I don't know. I can't bring myself to thank a politician who is putting those people out on the street in three months from now. And by the way, in three months, if there is less of an emergency, you know, feeling in the general populace, then um, it'll be much easier to for, for, you know, for centrists and for Republicans to leave those people out hanging as opposed to right now, where because coronavirus is anyone is the only thing that anyone can think about. Um, and because everyone understands that it's a moment of moral emergency, right now, if we push for, for instance, canceling rent, um, there's actually a chance that we can get it. Yeah. No, there's a very popular uh, bill right now in the state Senate. And it's got, I think, 16 co-sponsors at the time of this recording and a bunch of other people who said they would support it as well. Um, and what's interesting is that, like, can you talk about what Cuomo's done for homeowners in this situation? Sure. Yeah. He, so he's he's suspended mortgage payments. So essentially, he's done for rent what we want him to do for for uh, for mortgages. Yeah. 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 And and you know, people who are renting just have less money than people who are homeowners. Uh, kind of makes sense. You need to have a good amount of money to put down the down payment. You got to be making those mortgage payments. Um, and in New York, I found a stat: two thirds of residents are renters. And uh, one survey found that nearly 40% of, of New Yorkers don't have enough saved for a single month's rent if their livelihoods are put on hold due to the virus. So that's really concerning, right? You know, I know lots of people who are out of work. Um, one of my roommates even is a musician and, you know, there are no gigs right now. Um, it's just like crazy to think that you can just have, there was one poll that had 9% of the population was uh, laid off, which is 14 million people. And we had over three and a half million or close to three and a half million unemployment claims last week, which is many times the previous uh, record. And like, what is the expectation, right? Like a $1,200 check that will come, you know, in a few weeks, if you do direct deposit in a few months, if you didn't file taxes in 2018, which of course are people who are disproportionately low income. Um, so you'll have like this huge portion of folks who are just going to get screwed at the end of this moratorium on evictions. And you'll just have like, homeless families, you know, spiking in, in New York um, in a likely terrible economy. And who knows if the virus will even be under control by then. Um, and so it just really shows the priorities, right? Like homeowners deserve help as well. Um, I think they're in a tough situation as we all are. But the fact that they were covered 
sufficiently before you know renters uh, really speaks to his priorities. That's right. And and you know okay so if he was on this show with you uh, maybe he'll be your next guest. <laughs> guest um, what he would say and this is what he said at the press conference is you know I can't protect everyone from reality you know or or, or this is math you know I'm constitutionally um, compelled to pass a balanced budget and mm-hmm. so I have to make these cuts for instance um, yeah. or I can't um, you know wildly increase spending. Um, you know, we all have to make sacrifices together as, and he'll, you know, come, uh, I'm sure he'll have extremely compelling rhetoric to, uh, to, to, to support that. The fact is, in a few years, the, the, I, 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 I will bet any amount of money that the, that the wealth of the, of the 1% of New York, and this, of course, uh, is true of the country more broadly, will be as high or higher than, than it is right now. The wealth of the bottom ten percent or the bottom fifty percent um, will be lower. The, they are the ones who will pay the long term, uh, the long term cost for the pandemic. And you see this with the two thousand and eight crisis, where you know I, I don't have the statistic um, ready right now, but it, I think you know, for instance, the black um, average wealth in the country I think still hasn't recovered. Yeah, from from two thousand and eight. This is a you know, statistic yeah. that Trump throws around, actually, where like under Obama, black wealth and the uh, racial wealth gap increased. Right, that's right, and, and, and it's, it's because, true. It's, it's literally true. Right, right, it is true. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think. Yeah, it doesn't need to be said that Trump doesn't have that. The reasons it's true is not. It doesn't have anything to do with the. You know, for instance, the tax break that that uh, that Trump passed. Um, Sorry, what I mean to say is that Trump's tax break clearly won't address the causes of that. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and so what this shows is that ultimately these crises are paid for by, um, by, the, by the worst off of society. And it's just so abhorrent because these are the same people who, you know, who still are working, right? Who are in service jobs, which uh, they're, they're like out there every day putting themselves at risk. You know, the, I mean the healthcare workers, right? Like there's this, um, this nurse who I quoted earlier, um, on this podcast, um, Sarah Buckley, who, um, who, who was saying that, you know, like she and her coworkers, some of them have immunocompromised or elderly family members at home with them. And so they go for these 16 or 24 hour shifts. They go to work, they expose themselves to the virus, knowing that other health workers are dying. Um, they come back and they, and they, you know, are putting themselves and their family members um, potentially at risk because they have to, right? Because they don't have another choice and because we are relying on them right now. And so it is just, I mean, I, I don't have words to express just how like abhorrent it is that these are the people who are going to pay. Yeah. And, you know, the people with their yacht tax exemptions are not. Yeah. No, it is. Uh, I, I've been getting emotional about seeing like photos of nurses and doctors and other medical staff in New York wearing trash bags to work um, because they lack the personal protective equipment. And you see China and you just, I think uh, one of the stats actually by one of the nurses you quoted said that like they had brought in some 40,000 healthcare workers um, to Wuhan to, to help control the outbreak. And none of them got infected because they had the right gear. They had the right protocols. Um, and 
this is China, right? Like this is a country that has the per capita income of maybe like one seventh of the United States. I don't know exactly what it is, but you know, much poorer per person um, and way more people. And they had to deal with this before we knew as much as we know now. And they handled it so much better. And we were just leaving some of the bravest people, you know, out to dry. And I, I can't imagine what it's like to go to work, putting your life at serious risk, because even when you're young and healthy, like it still does kill people. It's not like a, uh, f- the flu or something like, it's still like, I, I don't want to take a one in 1000 chance. I'm going to die by going to work and then taking it home to family members and, and other people you're living with. Um, it's, it's just incredible how unprepared we were for this and how little the federal government is doing. And these examples of um, other government agencies, just like, failing to step up um, and provide what is an essential service to, to some of the people doing the hardest work right now. Right. Just very briefly on, on the 40,000 health workers quote, I guess maybe I'm a little bit skeptical of, of it only because it's, you know, <laughs> published by the, by the you know Chinese government, which, which, sure. uh, yeah. you know, was, was dishonest in the first months, but, but even still the point totally holds. And I guess one thing I want to say is that, okay, so, so, um, I think we've all been inundated with, with, uh, critique with totally like legitimate and important and urgent critiques of Trump and the federal government, um, at this moment, but there's a danger that we, that we think about it as like, oh yeah, those evil Republicans doing that. And the most important, uh, thing that I think the left needs to be doing right now is showing how, in fact, this is not the, like, this more, this vacuum of leadership um, is not consigned just to the Republican Party. And Trump, in fact, uh, or, or yeah, Trump, who Cuomo presents himself as, you know, like everything about these press conferences is designed to cultivate this contrast between Cuomo and Trump, mm-hmm. right? Like, Trump says, I don't take responsibility. Cuomo has this long quote about how I take responsibility. If you have any problems, you direct them to me, right? Or he um, he says, he, in every press conference, he says, I give you the facts because if you don't trust the facts, if you think that someone might be giving you wrong facts or lying to you, then you, know, then you become scared. So I give you the facts. All of this is, of course, designed to cultivate this contrast between him and Trump. In fact, uh, <laughs> the ideology that is motivating many aspects of their response, um, I think actually have a huge amount um, shared between them. And so some of the stuff that we've been talking about, again, refusing to raise a cent of new revenue from taxes on the wealthy and instead pushing deep cuts to education and deep cuts to Medicaid and and potentially even refusing $6.7 billion of federal aid, of free federal money, uh, that that all comes from the same right-wing austerity mindset. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And we've seen that just fail in country after country around the world. And the the right response is to, I mean, Keynes was still right. You know, we need to pump enormous amounts of money into the economy to have any chance of weathering this and the countries that have real safety nets are the ones that are going to come out of this better on the other end of it. Um, and you know, the, the number of things that exist in the world and the productive abilities of the world have not changed. Right. It's just that this like abstract concept of like stock market value, um, has decreased and like, sure, people aren't going to be buying stuff because they can't go outside. Um, but 
we do have the ability to make everything that we are making for people before this crisis happened. It's just, are we going to let the market dictate what things that when, what things people get, or are we going to base it off of human human need and uh, where resources can best be spent? I think that's I think that's so well put. Um, cool. Well, so I think we've thoroughly taken Cuomo to task. Um, what should people do? Uh, you mentioned this budget that's uh, due March thirtieth. Is that right? Thirty first. So- yeah, the, the budget is due March 31st, sorry, April 1st, which means we essentially have um, through March 31st. So we have a few days to to change reality. And as we've been talking about for this whole podcast, in moments of crisis, we all have so much power to change reality because the politicians, they're improvising too. They're, they don't have a script right now. So if we exert political pressure right now, you know, if, for instance, we get the hashtag make billionaires pay, um, you know, trending on Twitter, they will see that and they will wonder, oh, wait a minute, if I don't vote for, if, if I don't pressure uh, Cuomo to um, to include, you know, to roll back this exemption on yachts, for instance, in this budget, then maybe I'll face political flack um, and, and I'll pay an electoral price. So we have the power to, to make that happen in the next few days through March 31st. Um, some things that you can do right now are the, 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 the thing that you must do is if, if, if you're on Twitter or Facebook is, you know, t- tweet out like make billionaires pay or uh, no Medicaid cuts and at least get this out there on social media. But I think we all have to do more than that, too. We one extremely important thing is that you join a, um, a membership based Democratic organization on the left. So, for instance, the DSA or, for instance, um, the Sunrise Movement. And the DSA, for instance, in New York is organizing incredible advocacy right now on the budget. They have phone banks every day um, and they're pressuring all these legislators. Um, and again, I think it really can, like, it can, like, I, I don't think it's implausible to think that this kind of advocacy work can, can, um, can change the way that literally billions or even tens of billions of dollars are spent. Um, so you can join those organizations and get involved that way. Um, I think you can also like do what I did, um, which which is um, pitch your ideas to to um, to media. Um, one of the things that I think we're really seeing after um, f- from from the primary and from the few days leading up to Super Tuesday is that media is so so powerful. Um, yeah. especially on the left. And so, um, yeah, I, I think like if you have seen something on your Twitter feed that hasn't gotten attention in media, which is, by the way, how I wrote this Jacobin article, p- like pitch it to a news organization and get it published and, and get people talking about it. Um, I do want to say more. I do want to use this opportunity to say more more broadly. One kind of project that I'm that this has made me think about is creating a um, a left uh, news publication, online news publication in New York. Essentially, the way that I, en- I envision it functioning is basically just like a blog where we reach out to all these people who, um, you know, all these activists and organizers and progressive legislators who have so compelling stories, such compelling stories um, that are just getting zero reporting. And maybe the, and, you know, the crazy thing is that they're producing this content anyway 
on their Twitter feeds and you know in their internal emails that just get no um, no reportage, no coverage. Um, and so I want to find a way to like to aggregate them all and to get them out there. Um, and you know if we if all these different groups start publicizing one like centralized um, uh, news source for for like you know the left take on New York City and New York State. Um, news, I really think that that could, again, um, like change New York political reality. Yeah. Uh, the closest thing to that that I'm aware of is the NYC Thorn, which is a That's great right. newsletter put out, uh, I think, by NYC DSA. That's that was right. actually the first um, way I heard about this, what, March 23rd, full five days ago, I got an email, Cuomo announces stay-at-home order, backs plan to cut Medicaid. And right. I remember reading it and just being like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, and I kind of like didn't even believe it at first because it just seems so barbaric and uh, out of step with the moment. And um, yeah, no, it's just amazing. And I think like seeing writing about this in, you know, very credible publications like Jacobin um, does a lot of work because there's a lot of things that are slipping through the cracks right now. And a lot of... Uh, bad faith actors are using this crisis as an opportunity to push through whatever ghastly unpopular thing they want to do. And uh, this looks like one of them. That's right. And I should say, if there's anyone listening to this who is involved in New York politics, or even if you're not that involved um, and you would like to like potentially work with me on creating um, this left news publication for New York, like please get in touch because uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly would need help to make that happen. Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. Um, and you mentioned before we started recording um, your interest in effective altruism as it relates to the left, and be happy to talk about that for a few minutes with you as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, actually, can I ask you, um, like, how do these two hats that you wear? Um, so you work for Give Directly, um, and you're an effective altruist, and then you're like a leftist who has on Nathan Robinson on the show. Um, uh, yeah. How, like. How do you see the connections or tensions between the two? Yeah, I, this is a topic I've thought a lot about. Uh, I guess this will be only of interest to people who are like at least interested in one of these or firmly in one of these camps already. But um, effective altruism in a nutshell is a movement and philosophy built around doing the most good with your time and money, uh, using evidence and reason to inform your decisions. And I see the effective altruism project and the like socialist project or like left-wing project, which is if I had to summarize it, is like giving people the power over the things that control their own lives um, and making a like just and humane world for everybody. Um, I see those as related and there are definitely tensions between effective altruism and socialism as they currently exist and as the populations uh, exist. But when it comes to the actual principles, I think like, the thing that really unites them is this radical egalitarianism where everybody deserves a good life um, because somebody was born in your country, because they were born smart or of a certain ethnicity or gender or sexual uh, preference or gender identity or whatever. Um, they deserve a better life than somebody else. And I kind of just reject that premise. I think the impartiality principle is one of the fundamental ideas undergirding effective altruism, um, which is like, I should be impartial to whether I help you or somebody who lives in Kenya. Um, 
And it's a really powerful idea. Uh, it takes you to some like weird places. Um, and it can take you into like a place where you are sacrificing everything to give like another dollar to a highly effective charity. Um, and in the left, you can see the Sioux where people just get so involved in the activism and, and organizing for the downtrodden um, that they don't take care of themselves. But it comes from like this similar motivation, right? Which is like, there's just so much inequality and injustice that um, most people are not really aware of and awake to. Um, and yeah, I, I think like, I would say people in the effective altruism community, I generally disagree with a lot of their political views. And I think it, a lot of it comes down to like assumptions about the world and about right. media and like the media diet they consume. Um, so if you take like a Noam Chomsky, Edward Herman, like manufacturing consent understanding of media as like this organ of corporate and state power reinforcing the prevailing norms and setting the limits on debate and then allowing vigorous uh, debate within those limits. If you take that view of media, then like the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, the economists are going to like, you know, just reinforce all the structures that already exists. And people in the EA world like largely read just like really credible uh, highbrow sources. And I think that combined with the fact that effective altruism was founded by uh, super brilliant academics um, under who were starting this during the Obama administration, where there was this appearance that like you had a competent um, technocrat in charge of the most powerful country in the world and things were moving in the right direction. Um, I think it left this kind of gap in analysis where you don't really look at uh, the power structures that exist in the world and you identify consequences of global capitalism, for example, uh, like the inequality that I mentioned. But you don't have this really good understanding of like how those came about, or at least not a, a strong interest in coming up with you know, root cause solutions to those problems. Um, and then I guess if I'm going like, to critique the left, I think there could definitely be a stronger um, norm around evidence seeking and more openness to debate on like what the best ways to solve these problems are. Um, so I think there are like some policy prescriptions like, uh, you know, the Bernie campaign, I think uh, was arguing that we should not only not build more nuclear plants, but like close down existing ones. And I think that's actually like a crazy thing to do. Um, and there's like problems with nuclear and it's like a technical issue to some extent. Um, but the notion of like getting rid of this really sure. good source of like non-carbon emitting energy uh, would be nuts. And I don't think that's like a huge hot button third rail issue within the left. But um, I do think there's like a hostility to establishment consensus, which is like oftentimes good because the establishment is often wrong. But in cases where the establishment might have figured some things out, um, I, I can see this like anti-establishment tendency becoming like almost like a knee-jerk reaction. Um, and then the moral urgency with which the left freights its rhetoric can create like these toxic uh, rhetorical environments. So to make that less abstract, um, if you look at like any disagreement about the best way to get to Medicare for all as like you want to kill poor people, I think uh -huh. that really hampers your ability to have productive conversations around these things. 
Right. So that's, right. that's a lot I just threw out there. <laughs> no, no, no. That's so much to think about. I, yeah, I, I appreciated the kind of um, the distinction between effective altru altruism, like as a kind of present movement and um, like who is, is currently existing in that space, which as far as I can tell is, is certainly not entirely, but, um, but largely a kind of like Silicon Valley libertarian type. Um, and the philosophy, uh, and tell me, by the way, interrupt if you disagree. Um, well, I, I guess, so I, I looked into the effective altruism survey uh, to look at like, how do people identify within effective altruism? And it turns out that the majority of people identify as left or center left. Uh -huh. um, and it was, it was something like 30 plus percent were center left, like 20, like high 20s were left. And then like 9% identified as libertarian. Uh, and then like 20% was like non-identifying, like they just didn't have a political right. preference. And then like a 3% total were like center right or right. Um, I do think that there are some very loud voices coming out of like George Mason that are associated with effective altruism kind of like tangentially, but I don't think speak for like the median EA. And somebody sure. posted a straw poll of an effective altruism Facebook group, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, but like, who would you vote for in the primary? And it was like, Bernie had the most votes, then Warren had like three fewer votes than Bernie. And then there was a huge gap and it was like Buttigieg or something. Right. Um, okay, that's, re that's really heartening. Yeah, um, I, I felt the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess I will say that it does seem to me that um, p potentially, so as far as I, as, as far as I understand it, there, like there are, um, currents within effective altruism that focus on that try to measure, um, when you talked about the root causes that try to measure, you know, the kind of effects of various different targeted programs at the, um, to, to fix the root causes. But, um, here's my worry with effective altru altruism, which is, I was going to, I, I appreciate, I was going to say that I appreciate the distinction between, um, like, effective altruism as it currently exists, and then the philosophy of effective altruism or the principles that underlie it. My worry is that the, um, the principles that underlie it might actually lead to a certain type of politics, even for people who you know, identify as center-left or maybe even who, who support Bernie, um, where because you're so hyper-focused on things that you can measure, um, it necessarily constrains your your horizon because truly radical change is almost by definition it seems to me unmeasurable right like yeah. i can't give you a number for and i know effective altruists talk about like it's important to measure uncertainty and maybe you could find a way to kind of fit it within a um within a, a utilitarian kind of mathematical frame um but it does seem to me that if you look at the world with the framework of um uh, like in order to support something, I need to have hard numbers supporting it. Um, in a lot of cases, I do think that that will lead you in the right direction, right? Like I mentioned earlier today, how Medicare for all saves 68,000 uh, lives a year in America or would save that 68,000 lives a year in America and would save money too. And so that, you know, affect utilitarian principle should lead you toward uh, Medicare for all. But I do mm -hmm. want, I do worry that, um, more broadly to, to, you know, to call yourself a socialist or to, you know, to, to believe in, um, to believe in a radically different society, to believe that, for instance, you know, um, 
there is something beyond capitalism, um, but even if in the long term, and if, even if we can't currently, um, uh, you know, even if, as Marx said, that it, it, the society after the revolution will be unmeasurable by any yet established um, yardstick, to still have like a, a kind of impulse in that direction that is not um, motivated by any kind of study that you saw or any measurement, um, but instead by basic human values like solidarity or, or justice. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point. And I was just thinking when you were saying that about this critique I read of randomized control trials, which evaluate two, like, two different populations, or right, they'll take a population, randomly assign a treatment, and then assess how well each population is doing across some metrics, right? And this is a great way to figure out uh, the best public health interventions in a really poor country. Um, and it turns out that like anti-malarial bed nets are under provided by the market and should just be given to people for free. And this is like a really cost-effective right. intervention for saving children's lives. And it's like, that's great, right? right? And that's a really amazing thing that we can figure out that it costs like $1,800 of donations to the Against Malaria Foundation to save a kid's life. Um, and if you just look at the studies, you like figure out maybe like the best ways to do like these incremental, still very important, like moral, morally urgent activities, like saving the lives of children. Um, but you miss the bigger point, which is like, why is it so cheap to save a kid's life in Kenya? Um, and it costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars to do so in the United States. Um, but the actual critique of the RCTs was that we were looking for all these ways to like develop countries, um, their economies to those of like the West. Um, but none of those countries use randomized control trials to determine which policy right. to pursue. They just did things. And then some of those things created vast amounts of wealth. And some of those things created mass death. Um, and some of those things created both. Um, and we don't have like a, a really scientifically proven understanding of what makes a country uh, succeed, uh, or at least not a way of replicating that success uh, or the willingness to pursue the policies that would actually do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're going to be necessarily constraining your solutions base to that which is measurable if you take like a strict um, I need to see evidence for everything view and when it comes to questions of national policy I think you have to restrict your ep or relax your epistemic standards a bit um, and look for like parallels so in the healthcare example uh, no other country's done exactly what Bernie's proposing his proposal goes further actually than, than most in providing like you know dental uh, and, and mental health care and, and all that but, in some ways, but in other ways, it, it, I mean, it, it, it uh, unlike, you know, the UK, for instance, it doesn't actually have the government's run the sure, actual yeah. healthcare. Yeah, totally. Um, but we know that like single payer uh, insurance systems get better rates um, and can like set prices for things. And like there are countries that have done something similar and we can look to those. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's um, there's also just like this unwillingness to tie effective altruism to any political party. Um, or ideology, which, you know, the best case argument I've heard for it is that you want people who are working on like biosecurity or pandemic prevention to get listened to by Republicans and Democrats, right? 
Um, and if they're associated with effective altruism and effective altruism is associated with socialism, then people talking about pandemic risk will not get a voice heard during a Republican presidential administration. Um, right. And I, I find that actually pretty persuasive. And so I guess like my ideal or like my opening bid is that more people from effective altruism get involved in DSA and, and left-wing projects. Um, so they actually understand what the left is about because most of the people I know in EA who don't like the left don't really know what it is. Um, and in the ways that they do know what it is and disagree, it's like, okay, then join, join the left. We are the only people that are taking the problems we're facing as a species seriously. And we're the only people open to the kind of prescriptions that effective altruism might, might make. And to the people on the left who most of whom just don't even know what effective altruism is. Um, but to the ones who are critical of it, I think there's a lot of misconceptions on their end as well. Um, and I'd love to see them come to a meetup in New York. We have meetups, well, had meetups uh, about every two weeks and they're open to everybody. Um, and just start to get involved and get to know people. And uh, my lefty friends who have come to EA things have had a good time. And my left, my EA friends who have brought the left things have also had a good time. There's some selection bias happening there, but I do <laughs> think uh, that kind of cross-pollination is how you make the left a, a bit more rigorous and evidence-based uh, and how you make EA a little bit better understanding power and uh, political structures. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I should say that I, and by the way, if, if you need to, um, if, if we're if we're running too late, let me know. Yeah, we'll probably um, wrap soon. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I'll just say very briefly that yeah, like I used to, um, I used to call myself a utilitarian. I used to be, I used to call myself an effective altruist. I like wrote an article um, for for like a, a, a kids magazine when I was in high school, in, called in defense of effective altruism. Um, and That's I awesome. also used and I used to do like charity work. I used to run a, 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 like a tiny. Um, kids uh, charity organization and um, I think what ha like I think what has shifted my 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 kind of view on some of these things is that my worry is that so you said that like there is in fact a constraint on on the on the solution space by um, by the did we just disconnect no I'm still here Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. Um, there is a constraint on the solution space by some of the, by some of the frameworks that you approach the problem with, and my worry is that, for instance, the entire um, framework of something like charity, which which you know most effective altruism still still focuses on, you know, altruism, right? Actually, let's just start with that. The entire idea of altruism, um, I worry, like predisposes you towards a certain view of society and a certain kind of solution where if you are viewing your you know your interventions as um uh as like out of out of the munificence of our hearts we're going to like do nice things for poor people then i worry that that leads you to a certain type of of politics or if you are um, yeah, like as you as as you said with RCTs, like I've seen this, I've I've also seen a critique of, for instance, Esther Duflo, where she focuses so much on these, you know, on these things that you can hyper rigorously measure, but then as purportedly as a way to reduce poverty, but then you you like there's economic research done on how much of um, international distribution of poverty is attributable 
to um, to anti-poverty programs? And the answer is, I think, less than one percent. Right. So mm -hmm. like what actually determines which countries are poor and which countries are not poor or which people within a country is uh, are poor or which are not or the kind of politics that I think you just that Esther Duflo would. Um, but uh, for people who don't know, she just won the Nobel Prize for for this kind of work with RCTs. Um, she and her husband um, that she from the beginning would not look at because because she can't measure um, measure the outcome. And so I so hear you, and I'm so frustrated all the time with my like lefty friends who who like don't who, you know who who kind of dismiss certain issues because it seems too cold or utilitarian for them. For instance, a big one for me is um, is smoking deaths, where I really think the fact that smoking is like the single largest um, preventable cause of death in the in the world and in America causes seven million deaths a year. Like I can't even begin to wrap my my mind around that figure. And yet the left told like I, there's no left left response to smoking. I think that is because of what you're saying that we're not um, responsive enough to to numbers and to measurement and to like um, to kind of utilitarian ways of thinking about the world. But but I think it's also really important that we um, that we kind of retain a set of emotions and and values guiding our politics that I think a lot of effective altruists would probably dismiss as kind of fuzzy, emotional, like non-rigorous um, emotions, like, for instance, the emotion of, of love. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, I've definitely met people in the effective altruism community who have very low emotional affect and just like they're not they don't strike me as particularly empathetic um or empathic and they're like yeah i just became persuaded by the arguments and the numbers and uh, i give like 50 percent of my income to highly effective charities now and it's just like holy shit wow like i, I think that's actually more noble <laughs> than the people like you and you and i who are like emotionally driven and to some extent our involvement in all this stuff is just like some guilt reduction mechanism <laughs> You know, right. where it's like, I have no choice, but to... Yeah, my spreadsheet told me, I yeah. just got to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, to be clear, I don't want to malign effective altruists themselves. Like, some of them are do ridiculously amazing things. Like, some people, when Peter Singer says, and as far as I can tell, is right, that, like, it is immoral for us to, like, buy a Coke because we can, um, you know... Donate uh, the money. That, donate to, the money. Yeah. I have questions about the, about the kind of political implications of, of that message, but... Logically, I think it's totally right that like it is immoral for us to be doing that in in most ways. Um, and there are effective altruists who take that seriously and who like don't buy the coke or who like really constrain themselves um, and live these incredibly frugal lives to um, to just like donate all the, their income. And that like as personal human beings, I think that's heroic and and like kind of jaw-droppingly strong and, and inspirational. Um, but again, I just do have these worries about um, about the kind of politics that that, that that leads to or fits in with. Totally. Um, well, unfortunately, my laptop is dying, but uh, okay. this has been a really great conversation. Do you have any parting final thoughts for our listeners? Um, yeah, it's been such a like amazingly um, uh, wide-ranging conversation. I guess, yeah, the last thought, I, I think I might have mentioned this, but like, this is my first podcast. Like, I, I, I was, I'm kind of still stunned that I was just publishing Jacobin. Um, I have no qualifications. And, and all this is to say is that like, one 
one kind of takeaway uh, of this for me is that like it is so possible and maybe part of like maybe one advantage of the left being being underfunded and small um and non-institutional is that like it really really is possible to like to um to like make a difference or to get things heard and like in this moment of crisis, I want us like it is good that we are all feeling desperation and feeling sad and um, like mourning for people who we know maybe who, who who are sick or for our own jobs that we lost. But it is also I think we should really also cultivate an emotion of like optimism isn't the right word, but like determination and a feeling of strength that in this moment we actually can like make huge, huge differences. Um, and it's not just naive. It's not just self-important to say that we, um, like we have the power if we, if we kind of just like work for it. Um, and if we, and if we believe that we have the power, um, to, uh, to like, <laughs> like make people's lives make like potentially hundreds or thousands of people's lives, like substantially better and to change political reality. Okay. So that's my, my self-helpy motivational, uh, <laughs> quote to end the interview. I love it. Uh, thank I, you so I, much for having uh, me on this. Thank you for joining me. This is a, a, a good conversation and really encourage people to take the actions that you mentioned and uh, yeah, not despair in this moment of crisis, but make something out of it. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.